RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. And I was just aware that when, as I mentioned, when I'm reading the transcript, the transcript is all about facts and figures. There's nothing really in the, in the first part of it, in the majority of it, which is about humanity. It's an insurance appeal. And so that lack of human understanding or consideration was glaring to me when I read it. It's, ju- it's just facts and figures about barrels and chests and litres of water and, and, and that's it. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Giles Torreira, and we're going to discuss Giles's play, The Meaning of Zong. Giles is an actor, singer, musician, playwright, author, filmmaker and director. He has appeared in countless plays and TV shows, including Avenue Q, Hamlet, The Book of Mormon, The Tempest and six episodes of Horrible Histories. He is perhaps best known, though, for originating the role of Aaron Burr in the West End production of Hamilton for which he won the 2018 Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Musical. And in 2020, he was awarded the MBE for Services to Theatre. However, he's with us today because he wrote, co-directed and performed in The Meaning of Zong, a play about the Zong Massacre and which features the most notorious insurance coverage dispute in history, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, so Giles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Listen, that was a, thanks for that great introduction. I'm, uh, it, I, 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 I quite enjoy hearing that. Thank you. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true as well. Um, and and when when did you when did you decide that you wanted to uh, pursue a career on, on the stage? Or I suppose you know for the purposes of this podcast, I might have to rephrase that along the lines of: At what point did you decide that you weren't going to pursue a career in insurance? <laughs> Very nice um, insurance. Now I never wanted to do anything else. Well, no, that's not true. I wanted to. I wanted to be an architect. I don't know quite where that idea came from, but I always, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be an architect whenever anyone would ask. Um, but I always sang and danced and did silly voices and did impressions of people. And I was always kind of performing, but I didn't realise that that was something you could do as a career at all until I left school. Um, there were no actors or artists in my family. Um, we didn't go to the theatre. I was from a single-parent family, so we couldn't afford to come to London. Although my mum liked theatre, and so then after school, I, some of my friends who, who were older than me were, had gone to do a performing arts course in the college in the next town. And by that point, I'd started to do a little bit of amateur dramatics along with them on a Sunday evening because it was fun. And so they said, oh, why don't you come and do, instead of read, going back to school and doing your GCC, why don't you come and do this performing arts course? So I went and I auditioned. and. Um, and that was it, really. I suddenly thought, oh, you can do this as a, as a career. You can do this with your life. So, I, yeah, that's insurance was never what I wanted to do. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> although it is fascinating, the thing is, the thing is, I don't know if you find this, but 
I would like, I've, well, you probably had a great education, but I would love, I had a sort of st bog standard education. I'd love to go back to do, because now I think, oh, wow, history, I would have loved, I love history now. And also the thing I love about acting is that you, you get a sort of, it's, it's the sort of university education that I never had, I always think, because you're doing a different play and you're learning about something else. The play that, that you wanted to talk about, The Meaning of Zong, well, it comes in this huge moment in, in history, the end of the 18th century, where everything is happening. You have America being born, you've got the French Revolution, you've got all this, you know, all these empires. So yeah, I, I've, always been, I've always been quite curious and fascinated by history and periods of history. And so uh, acting for me was, has, has been great. Brilliant. And we've already mentioned uh, the, the meaning of Zong there. And kind of long-time listeners to uh, to this podcast will know that we, we did an episode on the Zong massacre um, about a year and a half ago with uh, Professor Trevor Bernard. And that episode kind of discussed the facts and the, and the history of, of the massacre in, in a fair amount of detail. And obviously, we don't want to repeat that in this, in this episode. We want to talk about the, the play. Yeah. But in order to understand the play, we do need to understand the story. So, Giles, could you just talk us through, kind of provided with a, with a high-level view of, of the story of, of the Zong Massacre? Well, the Zong Massacre, it's the end of the 18th century. It's in 1781. And a British slave ship owned by a Liverpool syndicate uh, have a ship which is going across from the west coast of Africa over to Jamaica. And the captain and the crew, when they get... The, the ship is is very overcrowded with enslaved Africans. And when they get to the Caribbean, um, they decide, the, 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 um, the captain and the crew never quite determined who, who came up with the idea to, uh, to throw certain of the uh, enslaved Africans into the sea in order to claim the insurance when they got back to England. Um, and so that's what happened over the course of three days, um, 132, uh, people with humans were thrown into the sea and killed. And then when the ship got back to Britain, the, the insurance was claimed and it, the insurers refused. It ends up in court. The judge, Justice Mansfield, finds in favour of the, um, the owners and the insurers at that point appeal that judgment, at which point Olaud Equiano, who's a freed former enslaved, African, African born, but he's living in London. He hears about this. He hears about the first trial and goes to Granville Sharp, who happens at that point to be a kind of one man abolitionist movement. He's, he's right at the beginning of the abolitionist movement. Um, by the time sort of Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson get together at the end of the decade, Granville Sharp is like the elder statesman on board um, in that group. And so allowed Equiana goes to Granville Sharp, who has spent you know, a good deal of time helping out um, enslaved and former enslaved Africans who are in London looking for help. Granville Sharp is the one who, who kind of they go to. He teaches himself the law and goes often to court and helps them out. So Alada Kriana goes to Granville Sharp and says, I've heard about this massacre that's happened and we need to try and do something about it, which they do. So um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking story. And I hadn't heard of it before. I heard of it in... I think 2014, I think I heard it. Um, so so how did you first learn about it then? A friend, a friend of mine was, I was having a, 
like a sort of afternoon social get together with some sort of artist friends of mine at a theatre because I was I was performing in the evening and then so in the afternoon I had this sort of get together just for people to sort of mingle and get together and a friend of mine I overheard her talking about it as I was as I was passing she was telling someone she was talking to someone else about and I just heard her say the the massacre where they threw the Africans into the sea to claim the insurance when they got back to Liverpool and something about it just sort of stopped me in my tracks and I sort of listened into what she was talking about. And then when I got home, I started to just research it and uh, Googled it. <laughs> and then, of course, you go, oh, wow, the whole world of that, that story and that period then sort of opens up. So I was just really fascinated by it. So I just, I just tried to read as much as I could and find out as much as I could. And then after a while, I thought, well, this is a play because, or this is a piece of theatre because, because it was so vast in its scope and also, the key thing was, which I should say, is that there was a transcript allowed Equiana and Granville Sharp go to, they hear about this trial, uh, this appeal, and they go to it and they make a transcript of that appeal hearing, which we still have. So the first, one of the first things I did was went down to Greenwich, um, to the Maritime Museum, and made an appointment to, to, to see this document, this book. So they bring this book out to you in gloves, and, you know, in this box, sealed. And I'm like, this is this 200-odd-year-old thing. That's the ink. That's the very book that was taken into Westminster Hall by a lad, or by, certainly by Granville Sharp. So it was the, the material itself, the verbatim material itself, was so extraordinary. I thought, well, let me just try and bring all this together as much as I can and see how much um, I can... It's better than anything I could write or a writer could write. It's, it's, it's what they said. Um, and in some cases, it's absolutely shocking. And in some cases, it's completely shocking. And some cases, it's profound and very beautiful um, ideas of human rights, which is being born at that moment, um, obviously in America and in France. Those two revolutions are all about liberty and freedom, human rights. So I spent a long time researching it. And... Uh, it was. It's been. It's been a. It's been a real hell of a journey, but but fascinating. This, to me, you know, so to me, the first thing that I thought was, this is such a fascinating story. Mm. Of course, the subject matter is horrendous. Of course, it is. Um, but not but. And the story itself is fascinating. Um, one of the frustrations that I have is that you often can't. We don't know. Who the Africans were in these stories. You don't. You have. You have names. You know numbers in a ledger. You don't necessarily have names. You don't have ages. You don't have ethnicities. You don't have religions. You don't have the villages where they come from. You don't have anything. Um, but what I found out as soon as I started researching this was actually no, there are names. There are loads of names. Tom, you know Thomas Clarkson when he in the end of the 1780s went on his voyage in his mission all around the docks to try and find the information which was then going to help the abolitionist movement, he spoke to a lot of sailors. He spoke to a lot of people who were on those ships and they could tell him names and they could tell him ages of people and what they said and what they did and what their particular tribal markings were. There's a huge amount of information there. So that just made me even more curious and hungry to just really find out as much as I could who the people were that, that experienced this um, horror and how they came through it there were two people that we hear about in the transcripts two africans one of whom 
is thrown, one of the people who's thrown into the sea, who manages to hold, the first mate describes, he manages to hold onto a rope that's in, hanging off the ship into the sea and he holds onto the rope and then he manages to pull himself back up onto the ship. Well, immediately I was like, well, that's someone who I want to know about. What, what is that situation like? You know, like, I can't even imagine being in that situation, but here someone was, and even though I didn't have a name or any information other than that, I thought, well, it tells me something about that person's spirit. It tells me something about that person's soul and um, their drive and their determination. And then there was another person among the Africans who was described that they spoke on behalf of the Africans during the massacre. They spoke to the, the crew and the first mate and, and tried to reason with them. And, and um, the person spoke English. So the two bits of information that you have about this human being is that they spoke English and that they spoke on behalf of the rest of the Africans. Well, then I was like, okay, well, that's extraordinary. So for me, it was all then about really just trying to make the invisible visible and mm. to try and say, well, the, the, let me try and um, to tell the story of the people who experienced this as much as I can through their own words. But if not, then I'll have to try and... Uh, Try and do my best. So it was, and and, and and you do you do that brilliantly in, in the play, kind of through these two. And forgive me if I analyse this in, incorrectly, but 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 certainly my my analysis of it is that there are these two um, kind of separate but interweaving narratives. Um, so there's the historical narrative, the one that tells the bare bones of the story, and that's that's the two abolitionists, kind of Alauda Equiano and Granville Sharp. Yeah. Um, and and that strand effectively gives us the, the you know the, the key facts the, the facts that we need to understand, um, but then there's also this this human story yeah. that the, the humanity narrative, yeah, um, which is the story of kind of three women, um, Ama, Reba, and Joy, yeah, um, who are you know they're they're captured, enslaved, and forced to travel on, on board the Zong, um, and and actually. Their story provides the emotional heft to, to the play mm. um, because it's a reminder that you know the the story of the Zong, even now, sort of three hundred years, well, two hundred odd years, kind of further on, is not about numbers. It's not about insurance. It's not even about justice, but it's about individual human beings who who were murdered and and that their lives and their deaths and. I, I think I think that comes across brilliantly in, in the way you wrote it and, and in the way it's performed. So first of all, is, is that is that a fair summary of of, of your, your process or what you're trying to get across through the play? Yeah, it's spot on. It's great to hear that because that's what I felt. And I was just aware that when, as I mentioned, when I'm reading the transcript, the transcript is all about facts and figures there's nothing really in the in the first part of it in the majority of it which is about humanity it's an insurance appeal and so that lack of human understanding or consideration was glaring to me when i read it it's ju it's just facts and figures about barrels and chests and liters of water and 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 that's it so for me, I thought, and it just then highlighted the need. I, I, it, it, I was like, if I can explain it this way, it was like, 
in that lack of humanity, the voices of the people who were experiencing it was completely deafening to me because it was not, it was not there. So it just, it just made it even more loud and deafening to me. So because that, that combined with the fact that I had these tiny fragments of information about the people, the Africans who were on the ship, I knew that when I came to start writing it, that the language and the sound of the lawyers in the court, I was going to try and lean into the, um, the tone which I was getting when I read that transcript, which was just a completely sterile kind of delivery. And then on the flip side of that, uh, and, and therefore, you know, because I was using a lot of verbatim stuff, um, obviously people in the 1780s spoke differently to the way we speak now, and therefore naturally much longer sentences, you know, and obviously we're in a, in a, in a court of law, so these are people who are very, very, very used to expressing themselves in massive amounts of um, intellectual detail. Um, so I thought I'd kind of lean into that and try and really honour that. And then when we would hear the Africans speaking, I, would, I wouldn't try and make any kind of concession towards 18th century or how they might sound. I wrote them just as if they were talking now because I kind of, I wanted to assist the audience in going when we're with those women on the ship I wanted the audience to really be able to connect with them and feel and, and feel like they're in the story with them. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, Alauda Equiano? Because yeah. he, he's, the, uh, he's the central figure uh, kind of around which the, the, the whole thing hinges. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's the character that, that you yourself chose to play on stage. Um, and a lot of it talks about effectively the change in his name, kind of from, yeah. from Gustavus Vassa to Laura Equiano. And, and, and it is one of the play's themes around his uh, discovery of his own identity as well? Is, is that something that you wanted to draw out? Yeah. He was born in what is now Nigeria, in West Africa, and he was captured and sold into slavery when he was about 10 and then goes over to the Caribbean, lands in Barbados, where actually, incidentally, my, my, the mother's, my mother's side of the family is from. And then he sort of comes across the, the Atlantic a couple of times, gets, gets sold into the um, army, or the navy rather, of course, um, and spends lots of time in, at war as a child soldier, effectively, and then has a very eventful life, and then ends up back in London and, and manages to, to purchases freedom and becomes a free man and that's what he's doing in london when 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 the, he hears about the zon so it it was a question for me about okay how do we bring together the story of the individual which is allowed at Kriana, and the 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 story um, writ large which is about the transatlantic slave trade and britain's involvement in it and how do I really unify those two things? And um, after quite a while, I thought, well, Alauda writes what we call the first um, so-called, what I call so-called slave narrative. He writes the story of his life and, and, and more importantly, publishes it in, I want to say, 1790, I think. So it struck me that 
on that narrative, the, it's called the interesting narrative of the life of Alado Quiano, he uses Alado Quiano or Gustavus Vassa, the African. He uses both names in the title. And, and I suddenly thought, well, what if, what if this Zong story was, came at that point, which it does, a couple of years before he publishes the book, but what if that, how is that event, how does that influence him in recognizing his original identity as opposed to the one that he was given? Gustavus Vasa was a he was a king in Sweden. So he was he was given this name by someone and then that's his name. And there's a, a certain point, as we have now, with you know, if you think about Muhammad Ali being Cassius Clay and saying, no, no, this is who I'm gonna be. Alada Quran has a kind of similar moment. And so I thought, well, I, I'm gonna try as much as possible to 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 investigate that change in him via the check the, the this story. So if you're going to move forward, you have to know where you come from, I think. And Alada Kriana has that as an individual. And then why tell this story now? I wanted to tell it now because I feel like as a society, we're in a place where we've got all of this, um, these difficulties happening and this friction happening with our society. And how do we move forward with that in a productive, meaningful way? Well, I think the first thing to do is acknowledge what has come before us. So you do not get something like the Windrush scandal without something like the Zong massacre. You just don't. It's, 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 the, the two things are completely related in terms of a mindset, a worldview, um, all of those things. So for me, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was very important to sort of look into this sense of identity and where you've come from and what you've done and what your life has been what your actions have been um, leading up to, to where you are at that given moment. And if you understand that, as in the case with, with Olada Criano, but once he makes that shift, you feel it. He, he somehow, in, in the interesting narrative, and I tried to get it in the book, in the, book in, the, in the play, once he makes that shift, there is, he, he, he's able to do a huge amount. And we're still talking about him now because of those things. So, um, that yeah, that sense of identity was really was really important, and and of course the, the play um, may well be the first and probably the only play that will ever be uh, to include uh, an insurance coverage dispute um, as one of its main scenes, um, um, which is this, obviously the seventeen eighty three uh, appeal hearing in Westminster Hall, uh, in which the underwriter Gilbert sought to persuade the judge, uh, Lord Mansfield, that Gilbert was entitled to decline cover. Um, to the, the owners of the, of the slave ship and the Gregsons. Now, rightly or wrongly, and in my opinion, wrongly, um, many people regard insurance disputes as uh, dull, I, I'm afraid to say. But nonetheless, this insurance dispute was is at the absolute crux of, of, of the play. So, so how did you visualise bringing an insurance coverage dispute to the stage and, and making it, making it of wider interest? Um, well, I didn't think of it like that. Yes, it's an insurance hearing, it's an insurance appeal. But for me, it, what was important was going, right, Granville Sharp and Lauda Kriana are going into Westminster Hall. What do they need desperately to happen? What do they want desperately to happen? If it goes one way, what does that mean for him? If it goes personally, what if it goes the other way, what does that mean for him personally? And then the same thing about what it means to the cause. So at the first trial, 
at the guild hall, uh, sorry, at the, at, the, at the appeal in Westminster Hall, there's a bit of information, which is that it rained on the second day of the massacre. And Mansfield says, oh, I wasn't aware of this. And therefore that, that, that informs his decision about there being a, a, a retrial. So that one piece of information, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's the one thing which unites Westminster Hall and then the ship, which is 18 months earlier off the coast of Jamaica. We have these two, as you say, these two things going on. One is sort of present day, if you like, which is in Westminster Hall with Granville Sharp and Mansfield and Alauda. And then we go back in time often to he- when we hear about what's happened on the ship, we often see it in the play. So you have these two time frames, And the one thing that, and two uh, locations. And the one thing that links them is this, the, the moment that it rains, because in the court, that changes, that informs everything. And then on the ship, it also informs everything because um, at that point, the, the entire argument of the crew was that there was no water, there wasn't enough sufficient water on board the ship. And therefore they had to jettison their cargo, which they had the right to do according to maritime law. And the property, their property, human property was insured, and therefore they had the right to jettison their cargo. So the moment when it, it rains, I thought was a really interesting one because it, it, it kind of joins in one moment the, the two worlds that the play has been about. Um, so those were the things I was trying to focus on. And as far as the insure, you know, as far as the sort of nuts and bolts of the insurance was concerned, I found it fascinating. Um, you know, Westcott's digest of, of law, and it's, you can look at it and say this is, you know, the whole idea that in 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 times of um, crisis, if you're in the middle of a storm or a hurricane or whatever, you can get us in your cargo, which might be barrels, which might be masts, which might be whatever sails, um, in order to save the vessel. They they say, well, these human beings are our cargo. So that central idea. It was quite, a, you know, it's quite, it's not something I ever even imagined or thought about at all, but it's a fascinating idea because at once it sort of highlights the inhumanity of it. And, and, and it's quite useful because what actually definitely does happen historically is that the, 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 the proceedings become about human rights. So the insurer's representatives really start laying in and really and expressing their outrage about these are human beings we are talking about. This is a matter of, you know, of, of, of human rights. Um, I don't think the phrase human rights is used in the transcript, but it's as good as rights and humans are used a lot. Um, and they're used in sentences. So it's very, very clear that what we're talking about is the idea of human rights. And that's very different from how the, the, the proceeding starts. So you're, you, when you read it, you, you, you can feel this steering the proceedings in a different direction, the direction towards human rights, which, of course, Mansfield and Lee kind of um, try to avoid and try and keep it on track. And this is about insurance. And so I thought, OK, well, I've got some license to be able to bring that out in our scenes. And I tried to do that by just leaning into the, the parts of the transcript where there is a bit of back and forth between the sides and Mansfield slightly trying to kind of keep, keep everything on track. So in, in that sense, I, I, maybe I, I don't know how, I don't know how well I am. Um, I mean, it's, I find insu- yeah, the, the, the parts that I saw about insurance, I found quite interesting. I found very interesting. Um, I had no idea that the transatlantic slave trade 
sort of hinged on insurance. That idea was, was such a simple idea, but I didn't know enslaved people were insured. Mm. That's like a huge thing to me. I mean, uh, let alone anything else that, that, that follows on in the story. But um, of course, everything is about insurance. Everything is insured. Everything is documented. Everything is tallied. Um, everything is accounted for. So yeah, that again is a huge eye-opener for me because it, it, it helps me say, oh, right, I recognise that from my life now today in 2022. If something is morally abhorrent, questionable, do we do something about it? Yes, if, it's, um, if it makes financial sense. <laughs> If, if, if it's, if it's going to, if it's going to help our economy, if it makes economic sense, yes, we'll do it. If not, no. Will we, will we, you know, is there oil there? Right. Well, we might do something about it. That sense of, of us as a society deciding or not to act on something or to acknowledge, acknowledge something comes down to basically whether it makes economic sense or not. And yeah. I mean, you, you just touched upon, a huge issue which is being discussed in business at the moment, particularly in the context of climate change. And, and to what extent should business generally, but insurance in particular, to what extent should insurance lead? And to what extent should insurance make decisions? Because you're right, I mean, insurance, because it, it, it sits in the background, it takes on the morality of that which it insures. Yes. So, so insurance can do vast quantities of good, and it, and it is ultimately for, for the benefit of society because yes. it enables lots of things to happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. But equally, it, it works both ways. You know, it, it, it can enable things which are not great. So where do, where do you, what do you feel about that? Do you think it should lead or, or not? I, yes. Well, I, I, think, I think climate change in particular is such, it's so pressing that, it has to. And, and insurance is trying to lead. It's just trying to work out how. Right. Because obviously it, it owes obligations to its, its in, insured clients as well. Yeah. yeah. So, so it can't just leave people high and dry because mm. that then has other consequences, which are economic consequences, which may, for developing countries or whatever, may, may actually result in lots of... You know, if, if you withdraw insurance from all coal-fired power stations in you know, a, a developing country, you'll suddenly deny that country all forms of energy. And, and that then leads to economic misery, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's but somehow something's got to be done because we've got to get to, we've got to get to net zero pretty damn quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because you hear that kind of, you hear that w kind of argument, that world of argument in the, in the Zong situation where people are saying, Yes, but we can't damage the insurance trade because we need we need the slave trade. The slave trade is very, very important. So that that and it's fascinating how they then how each side tries to maneuver around that, and and therefore when it becomes a moral question and how it sits with that idea of morality or not, it's it's, it's fascinating. It, it is, and, and business, business is not used to discussing morality, isn't it? it mm. Outside of war. It, mm. it it doesn't want to talk about morality, right? So it, it's fascinating, kind of particularly with climate change. Morality is intruding into the world of business, which, in a way, which is never done before, and it's fascinating. Yeah. 
anyway, I I I, I read, I, I read um, so when I went to see it at Bristol Old Vic, um, I, I bought the the the, the play, and I, I reread it just before um, kind of having this discussion with you, and and I wanted to choose a section which we could read out together, kind of to satisfy my. my Childish desire to uh, uh, kind of be a West End star, but um, I don't know where the play is. Have I got my play? I don't know where my. No, I, 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 but, but what I was going to say is it was really difficult because I wanted to do a bit where you were allowed when I was Grand Ball oh, Sharp. Okay. But 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 there's no, it it, it the, the play doesn't really lend itself to doing that. It, it, it you know it, it it chops and changes. It has it has a rhythm to it. And in fact, I think when the Guardian did a, a review of it, a five star review, as you'll be aware. It said that the script moves to its own rhythm, mm. um, and actually, when it was live, it was obviously accompanied throughout by fantastic music yeah. uh, from uh, Sadiqi Dembele. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, w- w- when you were writing it, was it was that a sort of musical rhythm, something that you wanted to create in it? Yes. One of the first things that I knew was it was going to be music throughout it. I was really interested, obviously, in the music that comes out of Africa, West Africa. I was also very interested in the music that came from on the ships via the sailors, the sort of Celtic Irish thing um, that is then kind of merged somewhere in the middle passage. And then you get American music, which a lot of sort of musicologists and scholars can look at particular melodies or songs, old songs, and say, well, we don't quite know whether that has its origins in West Africa or whether it has its origins in Ireland. Somehow, the, the sort of, they've all got mixed up. So I was really fascinated by that. And I knew that, okay, for an audience, we might not necessarily be able to understand insurance very immediately, but everyone can understand music. Everyone can understand rhythm. Um, the emotion that is brought via the form, the, the medium of music, um, is really, really important. I thought it would be really, really useful. So I, you know, in terms of you finding a, a piece, it was important that the play starts with Orlando Equiano hammering on Granville Sharp's door saying, this thing has happened. We need to do something about it. And so they go off on this um, j- mission to try and uh, find out as much as they can. And they're therefore on the back of that, bring, bring awareness of the British public of this horror and the horrors of the slave trade. So they're very much on a mission. So it was, I knew that the scenes would kind of, you know, I'd, I wanted the scenes to kind of zip along and be, be forward moving and not really sort of sit, sit anywhere too long. So maybe that's why you, you're having a little bit of difficulty finding it. Yeah, it, it just, it, it kept on moving. As you say, it kept on moving that there was, that there was a, you know, a, a, a uh, a, a visual image here, and then suddenly a visual image there, and then the kind of words here. Were, it, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was fascinating reading it because when I was watching it, because of the the stagecraft and because of the music, it all held together beautifully. I mean, it looked fantastic, and it was obvious what was happening. But on the page, it's it's a bit like um, it's a bit like one of those uh, Monet paintings of of Rouen Cathedral, where, where when you're close to it, yes. you can't see what it is. Yes, but you only see what it is when you step back, and yeah. and all the all the, you know, the paint suddenly becomes an image. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 fascinating. I never thought about it like that, but that's right. I think, you know, I never sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write scene one, scene two, scene five. 
I knew it was going to be one one thing, and they move from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Just because I thought, well, that I, you know, I want it to, I want the audience, to, I want to keep the audience, I want to keep the audience's attention. Um, mm. I don't want the audience to be bored. So, so the, the play was uh, was at Bristol Old Vic earlier this yeah. year, which is which is where I saw it, and it also uh, played at live uh, in Liverpool and in Edinburgh, didn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. so but what, what what next for the play? Is it is it lined up anywhere or or yeah, or, or what's happening to it? Yeah, we're talking about doing it in the spring. We've got, we've got, yeah, we've got, we've got somewhere in London because we we wanted to originally take it to. Tom had the idea to take it to the, the the main sort of slave trading cities. I mean, lots of cities in this country were slave trading, but we wanted to go to to Glasgow and Liverpool and Bristol and London. Um, we never got to London, uh, so now we think we found somewhere. Well, we have found somewhere, so it's just a matter of fitting in the rest of the, whatever that production will be. It might be a bit more, few more tour dates, and it might go internationally somewhere. So I would, I would welcome it, it being in London again, and I think that will happen. Good. Good. No, that'd be brilliant. Um, I can't do a podcast uh, with you without asking about Hamilton. So. Um, I, yeah. I have a, a, I have a few of my my colleagues are are I learned from your book that I've just read that, that they're called ham fans. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, ham fans. Um, yeah. So I've got a few colleagues who are ham fans. So um, obviously Hamilton is the, the the theatrical phenomenon of of the last decade, um, and uh, you, you've written a book about your experience. So you're Aaron Burr in in the West End um, kind of uh, version of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I should say Aaron Burr. Sir, but I, I, I had that in the script, but then I, I completely ruined it. Um, and, and you wrote a book, kind of your journal of your experiences, uh, called Hamilton and Me, uh, an actor's journal, which is, I have to say, it's absolutely brilliant. I read it in in a sitting over the weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyone out there who likes Hamilton, buy it, read it. You'll get so much more of an understanding about the about the musical, about the history, about um, the, the characters. Um, it's an absolutely brilliant book. Um, so, so looking back on your time as, as as Aaron Burr, kind of that, how do you summarise that experience? It must have been slightly crazy, wasn't it? Crazy is the good words. Um, it was, it was, um, it was life changing. I suppose you'd say. Um, I wasn't aware of it like everyone else seemed to be aware of it around me before it. I auditioned before it came in, but when I heard it, I thought, oh, this is this is. This is something very special, and that I really wanted. I connected to. I felt I connected to the character of Aaron Burr, and I felt really strongly about who he was and what his life must have been, as written by Lynn, which is not necessarily exactly as his life was in reality. But we're dealing with drama, so. But what Lynn had written and with this extraordinary music and how he expresses himself, I really felt connected to. So, uh, I, I knew I had that going into the craziness <laughs> was I had a really personal connection to it. So then it's like, oh, this is this huge pop phenomenon, pop culture phenomenon. Um, and at that point when I was auditioning, they were going, the company, the original company were going to the White House to perform for the Obamas. It was, it was completely insane. So, but thankfully I had what I felt, I, what it meant to me going into it. So then I could just sort of, two things one really just focus on what i needed to do learn my songs <laughs> learn my learn my words um learn where i'm supposed to be standing and dancing and at the same time i could also really enjoy it because 
uh, I thought, well, look, if 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 I don't, if I can't nail this character, then we're in trouble. But I know what that is. I know what this character is. So I can just, I, I've always got that. I can always fall back on that and I can always stick to that. And everything else is just, you know, a bonus. Everything else is just, so having, you know, famous people would come in to see it and um, um, Harry and Meghan liked the show. So they came quite a lot and we met them and there was always someone else in every night. And there was this huge, because I knew about the play. I knew I was going to be in the show like a year before it rehearsed. So you have to keep quiet about the show. You can't tell anyone you're going to be in it. So I was going around London, not being able to speak about being in this play. And then when they announced that Hamilton was happening, there was all the, it was on the buses and on the tubes and you'd see posters everywhere. And then it started to kind of get crazy. But I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to enjoy that because that's not really what the thing is. The craziness um, isn't really what the thing is. The thing is this character, this character and these, the story and these people um, and what they go through and all of that, the music. And I think also what it means to people, you know, you'd, you'd come out of the theatre and, and you'd, see, you'd speak to people that would say, we have had our tickets for a year or we've had our tickets for six months waiting or we've been listening to the cast recording for a year and how much that meant to them was great. You don't always get to feel that in shows. You can see people are excited or whatever, but when you really get to hear and see palpably what it means to people, it's like you can't really, you know, if, yeah, it doesn't really get any better than that. And, and, and your book, your journal about your experience yeah. um, as Aaron Burr makes it very clear that the, the level of research that you do in, into the character and, and the level of the insight that you get Mm. Um, and and that how you think through a character and the words in the play and how they interact with with the character, why a character does what they're doing at any, any particular time. And I'm just thinking, in relation to the meaning of Zong, yeah, you obviously wrote the meaning of Zong, yeah, but you also acted in the meaning of Zong. And and did you did you learn more about your script and about Allowed Requiano through the acting process? Did, did you, were there any surprises that you learned as an actor that you had overlooked as a writer? I learned, I mean, thankfully, it's been a quite a long process. So as a writer, you sort of, as you're writing along and, and um, sometimes I'd write um, longhand or sometimes I'd write on my computer, but you, you always, as you're writing a scene or a situation, you kind of have to put yourself in the, in the position of the character, all of the characters in the scene and try and sort of just live through that bit and then you think, oh no, no, it's not quite right. And then you try and come up with something else or, or it doesn't quite sound right or it doesn't quite trip off the tongue right or it doesn't quite feel right in, in that particular character. So you, you're always kind of living in, in the moment of, of the characters anyway. So, and because the meaning of Zong had been like five plus years, six years, I'd spent a long time kind of sitting in my flat kind of speaking as a loud Equiano. <laughs> so I didn't learn anything in that sense by the time I, we got to do it on stage I felt like I'd acted it already in a way but what I did get is that allowed this kind of maybe it's just me as an actor but there's a there was a kind of mischief there was a kind of sense this, the side of his personality which is kind of fun or uh, outgoing um why well, i really enjoyed finding i mean this is a guy who went on a, an, a, an expedition to the arctic or the antarctic the arctic this is a guy who was in sort of hurricanes in in the west indies and stuff and 
he taught himself to play the cello and like he's someone who's who looks around at life and you know coming from where he came from as well his experience he was in the navy and he fought and um so this is someone who's like he's going to look around and see life and be curious about things and kind of grab it and kind of live it so and then he writes a book and you know all this stuff so that side of it, the lighter side of his personality, I was really, uh, and you can't really ever find that until you're acting in the, in the scene night after night after night and there's audience there and the audience have their response as well. I mean, that's the key thing is that you write and write and write on your own in your flat, but then the huge part of it is when there's an audience there. I'm sure it must be the same in court when you sort of sit and you think with a case or you know the fact of the thing and go, okay, right, this is what I'm gonna do. But then once there are people there, I don't know, maybe that's not quite the same, but once of people know no, it, it, it's actually yeah. I, mean, I, I don't I don't do court work myself, but 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 it but it is sometimes you you think you have a brilliant argument mm. on paper, yes. But as soon as you vocalize it, yeah, you realize it's rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the way when you see people reacting to it, and sometimes it's the other way around as well. Sometimes an argument that you didn't think was a particularly good argument. You can see it strike home, and yes. and actually people respond to it, and you think actually no, that that's that's a that's a better point than I thought it was going to be. Yes, yeah, that's that that happens in theatre a lot. I think you 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 have an and it usually happens in writing rather than acting, where you kind of think oh this scene's about this, but then and it usually comes out where like you start to perform a few performances and you go oh no the audience is way ahead of you. It's usually things like that where you go no no you can cut that or you can. The audience, they, they get it, they're ahead, they understand what the situation is. And then you learn things that way. But um, in terms of uh, the, the guy himself, it's always interesting when you have to take something from the page and, and, and have it be a, a real human being or that an audience accepts as, as a real human being. So, yeah, I think that, that the, the kind of, the, the kind of uh, uh, um, what would I say, the the sort of a positive side of him, the, the uplifting side of him, the curious side of him, the playful side of him was something which I really enjoyed exploring in the show. Brilliant. But there are two things we should point out at this point. Uh, the Tom, the Tom Morris that you mentioned uh, is uh, artistic director of Bristol Old Vic uh, yeah. and uh, he was director of Warhorse, wasn't he? Which is his yeah. sort of... Yeah. Kind of, uh, he's, but he's done brilliant stuff at Bristol Old Vic and yeah, Touching the Void to as leave, well. Actually. He's just about to leave, but he... Um, he is. Yeah, he is. But he did uh, Touching the Void, which I saw yeah. there, which is brilliant, and, and Dr. Semmelweis and whatever. Yeah. So, but all good stuff. Um, and also that the radio play, my, I, I believe it's still available on, on BBC Sounds, isn't it, on the yeah. website? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's still The Meaning of Song. We had to sort of trim it down a little bit. I think it's like an hour uh, or an hour and ten. And uh, yeah, it's still available on BBC Sounds. So Brilliant. And what's next in line for you? Next, I start rehearsals on Monday for a play at the National called Blues for an Alabama Sky, which is an American play written about 20 years ago. And it's set in Harlem in the, in the Great Depression. So it's about a group of friends sort of finding their way through that. And then after that, in October, I'm going to do Othello at the National. Brilliant. No, so we, that's just, what I'm about to do. we just just bought tickets for Othello, actually. So you better ah. be good. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Oh, pressure, 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 pressure. Okay, well, <laughs> well, you, 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 hopefully, hopefully I'll make it worth your the price. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it will be. And I also know it's going to be on um National Theatre Live as well, isn't it? So once once yeah. the bun's finished, it's gonna be yeah, it's it's gonna be gonna be on the, on a television near you. Yeah, and uh 
Clint Dyer is directing it and we've worked together quite a lot now. And um, so I'm, yeah, I'm excited about both of them and they're both very different projects. So I'm, I'm uh, so I've taken a bit of time off, feel recharged and yeah, I start Monday. So wish me luck. Brilliant. Well, I wish you luck. So Giles, Giles, that was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.